Well, Happy New Year, and with the new year, we're starting into a new study today. We uh, finished the book of Titus at the end of last year, and uh, we're going to turn to an Old Testament book uh, to start the new year. We're going to be in the book of Malachi, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Malachi, and if you have no idea where that is, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Father God, we just uh, thank you for this moment to gather together as your people. And Lord, as we step into what your people have always done, which is come together, hear from you through your word, respond in worship, partake of communion. Uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us. We're stepping into a, a topic that I really suspect all of us struggle with at some level. We need your word on this topic. And, and so, Father, uh, send your spirit and have him move in these next moments together today, but really over these next six weeks as we study the book of Malachi. And, and I pray, Father, that your spirit would just help us in a way that he would open our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, that to get a new gospel perspective on the circumstances that are spinning around us. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would then convict us of certain things, encourage us on certain things, and and that he would just draw us near to you. So Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or out of step with your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, meh is the emoji that really describes most of my mornings. Uh, I have to confess that One of my biggest uh, struggles, spiritual struggles in life is spiritual apathy. What I mean is is that I don't wake up on most Monday mornings just excited about getting in the Word of God. I I don't wake up most uh, Wednesdays when I open my eyes and and think, man, uh, I'm ready to kind of get to that devotional time and that time of prayer. Like rarely do I wake up on a Friday and just wake up and just grateful to God for all the blessings that he's given to me of all who he is and what the gospel is. And I have to confess that I rarely wake up on Sunday morning just chomping at the bit, come to be together with God's people and preach the word and do ministry. Now, before you politely slip out the back and run as fast as you can from this church, I actually think it's very important for me to confess that to you because my suspicion is, is that you have the same struggle that you have moments in your life, maybe long seasons of your life that are just kind of meh spiritually, right? Moments where you're just apathetic, where, where, you, where you just don't care. I believe that, that most Christians, if we're honest, that we don't naturally have a passion for God and his word and his people. So if you struggle with spiritual apathy, then Malachi is a book that you need. Today, we're going to begin a six-week study of the, of the last book in the Old Testament, and, and I've titled it, Who Cares? Questions for the Apathetic, and, and, I, and I've framed it maybe as a, as a question, at least the first part, because the book is broken into what I think are six sections that, that are maybe thought to be sermons, or but they're rhetorically in such a way to where it's sort of like question and answering going on. There's some disputes that are made either between God to his people or from God's people to God. And there's kind of this back and forth. So there's questions asked and then questions answered. But these six disputes, 
they really have at, at a thematic level, they're all about the problem of heartless orthodoxy. They're all dealing with this issue of where, okay, we can uh, believe all the right things on the outside, but do it from really cold, uncaring hearts on the inside. So, so God through Malachi, he's going to say that when, when we don't care about him, we're, we're to ponder the deep, glorious truth that he cares about us. His love is steadfast. In other words, when you're struggling or are facing with heartless orthodoxy, you're to remember the love of God. You're to go back to that well. And listen, this message from Malachi is important because we're all there. We all, in our flesh, still struggle with our fallenness and our sinfulness and our and our weaknesses, and thus we, we slip into those moments. We just naturally go to those places of heartless orthodoxy. So even after we've been converted, we still need the gospel. We still need to, to go back to those truths about his love. And the truth is, is that God promises. He makes a covenant promise to steadfastly love you. It's, it's unconditional. It's not based upon your own good work. So when we lack love, when we're spiritually apathetic, we always have this opportunity to return to him. So today, we're gonna look at God's promise to love you. That's the, the first just main assertion that he makes in, in the book of Malachi. And then we're gonna uh, push into the problem of God's people just kind of shrugging their shoulders at that. They, they don't really care and because they don't really believe it and they're not in awe of it. And so he's gonna call us to, to believe that promise of his steadfast love, no matter uh, the trials and the difficult circumstances we face, because all that's going to lead to us seeing his glory. Start with me in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Well, then the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. First thing I want you to see is that God promises to love you. Now, before we fully dive into this, we probably ought to get our historical bearings. Now, the, the first, as we know, the first king of Israel is King Saul, which we studied last year. But, but after the rejection of his failed monarchy, we then get King David. And then from King David, we get King Solomon. King David probably begins his rule around 1040 BC, so a thousand years before Jesus. And then Solomon probably begins his reign uh, about 970 B.C. And, and during the reigns of David and Solomon, the nation of Israel is, is really at its most prosperous, its strongest, its largest, and most faithful moments. And, and if you know the story of the nation after that, after Solomon, you, you, you get these series of kings. And so with Solomon, you have this high point of building the temple. And then you get all these other kings which by and large are marked by unfaithfulness. So, so there's a weakening of the kingdom because of their lack of faithfulness. There's a heart problem, and as a result, the country is weak. Now, now that's important because Israel sits, as it does today, kind of at a crossroads of a lot of different countries. So Israel's fighting a war today in the south 
But they're also catching missiles in the north. So they're surrounded by enemies. And that was the case in the Old Testament time. It's kind of at this crossroads between a lot of different countries. So initially, the threat was from the Egyptians from the south. But, but then later, you get a threat from the Assyrians in the north. So the Assyrians come in in, 9, or in 712, uh, defeat uh, the Israelites, and then and take them into exile, mainly from the northern tribes of Israel. And then you get the Babylonians from the east, and then five. 97 BC, the Babylonians come in, conquer the land of Israel, and then also take exiles back to Babylon. Now, while they're in Babylon, the Persians come and they conquer Babylon in 539 BC. That's significant because what the Persians do is is they uh, set up religious tolerance in their empire in order to kind of pacify all these different nations that they're ruling. But what that leads to is, is, is a couple of different waves of Israelites going back to Israel as a result of this Persian uh, religious tolerance. So we, we know they go back in 516 B.C. and they rebuild the temple. And then under Nehemiah's leadership in 530 B.C., uh, uh, he goes back and helps rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. That's the historical setting, and that's where Malachi sits. Malachi is probably a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah sitting in kind of that mid-5th century B.C. is during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's assumed in the book of Malachi that the temple has been rebuilt. There's also a mention of a governor, which is probably a Persian governor. And there's also a lot of similar themes between Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. Now, the state of the country during this time is probably uh, best described as relatively stable. Now, I say it that way because, you know, it, it was worse when they were having to, to fight off all these empires and being exiled away. So it, it's more stable than during those times. But, but it's relative because uh, things are, are not necessarily that awesome. And, and the reason for that is, is because uh, God makes all these promises and prophecies in order to bring them back to the land. And so you've had uh, Israelites come back to the land, but when they've come back, it, it's not been a restoration of the time of David and Solomon, okay? It, it, it's a moment where they're still a vassal state under the Persians. They're, they're, they're taxed really high. There's been a drought, so the economy is bad. And so probably the best way to mark them is they're in this meh moment. Like they're not scandalously sinful, but but they're also not passionately faithful. They're just meh. Therefore, God sends them an oracle. They're in this lukewarm state. And so God's going to speak to that. Now, an oracle technically is is just a, a prophetic word. And so God gives them this prophecy in the midst of their meh moment, a prophetic word. Now, when we think about prophecy, we, we tend to think about it as a, as a foretelling. And there's really kind of two types of prophecy. And the first one is what we commonly think of. It's a foretelling. It's these predictions about the future, and the prophets do that. But also what the prophets do is they foretell, meaning they, they correct and they rebuke. And many times you see both uh, happening with the same prophet, and that's what you see in Malachi. He, he does both. Now, the book of Malachi is also unique because in verse 1, not only are they given an oracle, but if you'll look back at that, there's an additional descriptor. It's an oracle of the word of the Lord. That, that, that extra phrase there just gives validity and force behind this oracle. But, but in verse 1, it also says that the oracle of the word of the Lord is given to the people of Israel by, name, by a man named Malachi. Very little is known about Malachi. 
and, and some people argue that maybe he wasn't actually a person, but just that this was just a general prophecy because Malachi means my messenger. So some people have argued it similar to how they argue Theophilus and, and Acts uh, and, and in the Gospel of Luke. But, but I think he's probably a real person, and most likely he's an actual prophet that is traveling around the nation of Israel preaching these same sermons. So these are probably summaries of six different sermons that he preaches. So through the preaching of Malachi, God's main initial assertion is that he has loved his people. That's what we see just right out of the gate, that God has loved his people. Now, now the meaning of love in the Old Testament and that term is really similar to our understanding of things. It has kind of a, a wide range of meaning. So love at the end of the day, it's about delighting in or desiring the good. So you can love something, right? Like you can delight in this thing. And so if you have it or if you think you're going to have it, you think you're, it's going to make you happy. So, man, I love that. And so you, it brings you delight. It brings you happiness. But you can also love someone, right? And when you love someone in a similar way as that thing, when you're in their presence, it brings you happiness. It brings you delight. But also when you love someone, you work for their good, right? You, you do things, maybe you pray for them, maybe you help them in some way. You do that because you love them, because you want their welfare, you want their, their good. And then when you see them succeed, when, when you see them uh, be happy, then, then when you see the, the good working in their life, then, then that happiness returns in turn to you. You delight in that when you, when you see them doing well. The best human examples of love they're within a family or, or with a close friend, right? And, and dads, you, you know what love is, right, dads? Like you, like you make sacrifices for the ones you love the most. Maybe you're working a job that you hate. And by the way, most people don't like their jobs, okay? Kids, you know, your dads work these jobs because they love you, okay? Like, like they're providing for you. They're, they're sacrificially doing something for you because they want your good. And when they... When they see you doing well, in turn, it comes back to them that they delight in that. I, I saw a cool example of this on social media this week. There was a video that popped up on my feed, and it was of this kid, and, and he's playing the, um, the inter, Interstellar soundtrack on the piano. Have you seen that movie? If you can remember the music, it, it's, it's a great score, okay? And, and, it's, and it's really impressive that he can play it. It's, it's a hard piece to play. But what's cool about the camera shot is it shows him playing and, he, and he's kind of demonstrating to his parents what he's learned. He looks like he's a college kid. And then he's got mom and dad kind of in the back and they're just kind of sitting back listening to it. But the cool thing about the shot is, is they're, they're really enjoying the moment. Okay. Now kids, just to let you in on a little secret, I can tell you why they're enjoying the moment. The, the piece is good. Okay. It's, it's great music. That's not really what they're enjoying. That, like they're, they're soaking up the moment. They're finding happiness in that moment because they love the boy. They see him doing well, okay? And so they are enjoying that moment. It's making them happy because they love him. Does that make sense? That's how love works. So God loves you. That's how he loves you. He works for your good. And when you're faithful in these things, uh, work out for you and in turn makes him happy. But here we are in the fifth century BC and God's people are questioning if he loved them. Now, to be very blunt here, God finds that very <laughs> offensive, <laughs> okay? God's offended by that. 
Like they question God by comparing their circumstances with somebody else. And that comparison is foolish and it's unfaithful and it's offensive because God has this long history of steadfastly loving his people. In fact, God has made a series of covenant promises to his people to love them. And he's kept his promises. And and it's good news that he's had this long history because we can bank on those covenant promises. Like you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And then you can go to Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Ezra and Nehemiah. And God has made these covenant promises to his people. And then he has kept them. Okay, so, so God is delighted in working for his people's good. And, and like good parents training their son to play the piano, there were moments, no doubt, that God had to discipline his people. But, but that's not divorced from a loving heart that he has for his people. Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? So that's where he goes, Jacob and Esau. It, it's this great story from Genesis uh, 25. And, and the real gist of it is, it's a story about God's electing love. Okay, like it wasn't their, their good works that, that, that God then uh, blessed them with. Okay, like, like frankly, Jacob is kind of like you and me. He's kind of a punk, okay? But, but God doesn't give him what he deserves. He has very imperfect faith. But that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is, is that God gives this steadfast, loving election to Jacob. He didn't deserve it. He gave him mercy. He gave him what he didn't deserve. And even though... Uh, his love and faith are imperfect. God's faith and God's love was not. But notice this past-present connection going on here in these first couple of verses. They're questioning God's love in the present, but to validate his present love, what God does is he goes back to the past. In other words, if we want to know if God loves us in the present, we just have to go back to his past history of love to know if he loves us in the present. So if you're wondering, okay, if God is delighting in our good, if you're wondering that, you just need to go back to the Bible. Go back to those Old Testament promises that he has made to love his people. So if you wonder if God is working for your welfare, working for your benefit, you just need to remember his steadfast covenant promises to love you and then all the evidence that the Bible gives us of him keeping those promises. Friends, if you're in a meh moment, then you need to slow down and ponder deeply the love of God. Malachi is calling you back to that well of redemptive history. We have this long history of God being faithful to his covenant promises to love you. And if your heart is apathetic, then you need to circle those promises again. You need to go back to the Old Testament. You need to go back to the Bible and see the evidences of how he has loved his people. You need to identify with the Old Testament uh, people of God. They're they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're imperfections. And then you need to, to see how God gave them not what they deserve, but he gave them his love. And then you just need to, to sit in that. The medicine for the apathetic heart is taking time to ponder the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Now, before we go on to the next verses, notice that the, the, the real problem for the people of God. You see, God has not loved them in the way they want him to love them. That's the problem. God's love is not deficient. It, it, it's there. This indicates that, 
that they're not trusting God. They don't believe that his ways are best. So it's like the kid who, whose parents, uh, who says to his parents, listen, you don't love me. Because as I've learned to play the piano, I want a $40,000 Steinway piano, and you told me no, so you don't love me. And the parents are like, what are you talking about? We, we, we paid the bills. We, we gave you the, the time to learn this. We, we paid for the tutors, and, and that's evidence that, that we've loved you. In fact, not giving you the Steinway piano, that's actually evidence that we love you as well, but you can't see that. The issue isn't the love of God here. It's the immaturity and the selfishness and the short-sightedness of his people not to trust God, uh, God's ways are best and God's love is best. He didn't really believe that they loved him, but the parents' love is not the problem. Rather, the child's self-absorption and lack of trust, that's the problem going on here. Friends, God promises to love you, but do you trust him to love you in the best ways? Believe God's promises, not your circumstances. Look at two to four. Again, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Again, not only does God love his people, but he promises to love his people. He makes a, another promise here. God's a, a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. If you go back uh, to, to King David, first, uh, 2 Samuel 7, this is where we see the Davidic covenant, this great promise that he makes with David. He says in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, talking about King Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Again, God will love him. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as it did from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So he's saying here that I'm going to discipline him. But again, that's not divorce from, from me loving him. That's not, a, that's not an example or evidence of lack of love. And then we read in 2 Samuel 7, 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Malachi is in a day where that throne is, is not established. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about something eternal and future, something better than the Davidic reign. He's talking about something better. God promises to love his people. But in that that's not divorced from his promise of justice. Not only does God promise his love, but he also promises justice. And that's what they're complaining about in Malachi 1. They don't see the justice. If you love me, then why are the Edomites succeeding? Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And then the prophet Amos says in 5.24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like the ever-flowing stream. God promises you his love and he promises you justice. 
But here's the key for today. God's promise of love and justice does not mean that it will happen when you want it and how you want it. Let me to repeat that. He promises you love. He promises you justice. But he doesn't promise to give it how you want it and when you want it. He might not let you have the Steinway piano. And, and, and there might be a kid in your class that nobody likes and you don't like, and his parents do give him the Steinway piano, and it's like the great injustice of sixth grade, okay? Like, like that can happen. In other words, you might not like the circumstances around you, but that does not mean that he doesn't love you and that he won't ultimately bring justice. Friends, there might be seasons like the people of God are facing in Malachi's day, where you look out at life and you grieve thinking, you know, as I look at this, I can make a case for God not really loving me. Like I look out at all this brokenness and all this injustice and I can make a case that God is not just. Now, if you're there, I think it's cheap in the hard times to look out at life and moan, well, I guess God doesn't really love me. There's a cheapness to that. There's a shallowness and an immaturity. Like there's, there's a self-absorption to look out at the brokenness of the world and the evil around you and clue, well, I guess God doesn't really care about justice. Listen, God loves his people and he promises to bring about justice, but it's in his time and according to his terms. Do you see that here? You see like the Edomites of verses three and four, there might be seasons when those who don't follow God are gonna celebrate thinking that God is dead and that they killed him. Like there's gonna be seasons where they're gonna to point to their achievements. Look, our walls got turned up and we rebuilt them. There's gonna be seasons where the unbelievers uh, around you are gonna say, see, God really isn't good and loving. We, we know what's better. We know what love really is. There's always gonna be the Edomites. There's always gonna be the unbelievers that say that. There might be long seasons when those who reject the Bible are established in the ruling classes of society. They're the elites of the culture like the Persians. And they're gonna giggle at God's people. They're gonna look down at God's people and say, see, your God really isn't just. We, we know better. We know what justice is. You know what? God said, don't do this. We're doing this and we're getting away with it. Your God isn't really just. There's always going to be seasons of that. However, beloved people of God, give it time. Give it time. You see the day, you see the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. Give it time. Believe God's future promises despite your present circumstances. Is there an area of your life uh, that you're waiting on the Lord to reveal his love? Is there a situation in your life where, where you're waiting for him to reveal his justice? Friend, give it time. Keep trusting. What's most challenging to you about waiting? The Christian life is a waiting experience. Are you questioning your trust? Like what stories and what truths do you need to go back to in the Bible to help you wait faithfully? Give it time and keep trusting. And let me tell you why all that is so important. Do you recognize that joy comes from waiting faithfully? The longer you walk with God, you know that's true, right? Like if you have a difficult trial and you say, you know what, God's wrong here and you buck up against God, you indict God, 
that doesn't lead to happiness. But, but you could have that same exact trial and trust the Lord and patiently wait. I, I don't know what you're doing here, but I know you love me. I know you're bringing about justice. I know this is working for my good. If you do that, that leads to joy, doesn't it? So joy hangs in the balance here. And that leads to verse five. Believe God's commitment to his glory. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Listen, believe God's promises, not your circumstances. There, th- this is true, this is right. That's also very wise. Again, that's, that's the pathway to joy, so joy hangs in the balance. And you see, when, when you have a, a difficult circumstance and, and, and if you will faithfully wait and give it time, what does God promise that you're gonna see there? Your own eyes shall see this, and then you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's talking about the Edomites, but he, he's talking about something bigger there, isn't he? See, friends, if you give it time, if you will trust God through difficult circumstances, if you will reject the, the mocking of unbelievers who have this kind of logic like the Edomites had, then you will get to see the greatness and the glory of God. That's the promise that he's making to you here. He, he's saying, stay with me. And, and if you'll trust me, then God makes this commitment to you to see his glory. And listen, God has a commitment to his glory. That's where he's taking all of this, that he's glorified in all of it. He's gonna be glorified for eternity. And the good news is that you're gonna get to see it. Now listen, to be abundantly clear, he's very committed to his glory, but he is not committed to your glory. And the reason is, is because you're not that glorious. I think you're great, okay, for the record. But, but no one like just bask in your glory and then finds great joy in it. But you do with Jesus. When you glory in Christ, it does something to your soul, doesn't it? So that's why he says, that's why his glory is so important because it's actually glorious. And practically for you, it leads to your joy. Nothing is as glorious as him. Nothing is truly glorious in the way he is. Great is the Lord. However, notice that they won't just generally see the greatness of God. He's doing something beyond the border of Israel. Uh, This is talking about Edomites, but but it's talking about something broader as well, right? Like he's saying, listen, the kingdom of Israel is great, but I've got something better that's coming. Maybe you're sulking in that we're not back to the time of David and Solomon, and your eyes are there in the past, but I'm telling you, I've got something more glorious in the future. I'm bringing in the kingdom of God. I'm gonna send a Messiah, and he's gonna usher in the kingdom of God. You see, that's the greatness and the glory that God is committed to. And that's what people get to experience when they keep trusting him, and they keep believing that God is a loving God, and that God is gonna bring about justice. That's the reward that you get. That's that's the promise that he's making with you. Like all the covenant promises that he made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and and, and David and Solomon, he's making a similar promise here in the fifth century BC to his people that if they would trust him in their trials, then they would see his glory and they would experience the blessings of the kingdom of God. It was coming for them and it's coming for us. He's making a promise for you today. 
If it's a promise, it's good news because God keeps his word. You hear the good news in this passage? Is this good news to you today? Like God's people in Malachi's day, God's people today struggle with spiritual apathy, don't we? We have those meh moments, right? We have, we have those moments where we, where we grumble about the things uh, are not how we want them to be. We, we have those moments where we complain about, what, why do other people have it better than us? Like, like in Malachi's day, that grumbling and complaining many times, it's just fueled by, by the outside unbelieving voices who, who, who mock God's love and justice. Therefore, like in Malachi's day, trusting is waiting. Maybe you're in a season of waiting. God's calling you to trust him. But the good news is that if you keep believing in his love versus believing in the circumstances of your life, then God promises his glory and his kingdom. That is good news, amen? That's a good word. Friends, diagnose yourself for a second. Like, like evaluate your, your head and your heart. Evaluate what you, what you really believe. In, in what ways are you spiritually apathetic right now? Like, like, be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Are, are you believing something that's untrue about your circumstances? Is doctrine stale in your life or is it life-giving? Are, are you trusting the unbelieving Edomites view of the world or are you trusting in God's view of the world? Again, the medicine for, the, for spiritual apathy is the love of God. Re- return to the well. Go back to that, that, that life-giving water of God's love. What I mean is return to the well of truth, but also return to the well of relationship. He, he, he's calling you back to truth, but, but he's really calling you back to a relationship. But, but ponder this truth for a moment, Romans 8, 31 to 35. Ponder these truths. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Friends, God loves you so much that this pastor says that he sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. And for the record, I would never do that for you. I don't love you that much. And that's not offensive because you wouldn't do that for me. You don't love me that much, but God loves you that much. That's how much he loves you. He's worked all of this sacrificially on his behalf. It cost him something, but for your good. Do you see that? And further note that nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing, no trial in this life can void out his love, amen? Nothing in this world or nothing in the spiritual realm even is powerful enough to separate us from his love. Like there's no daylight between your trial and his love. Like God is with you in all of it. Let me say it this way. His love and justice are with you even if the sword comes down on your neck. Nothing will separate you from his love. Return to that well if you're spiritually apathetic today. 
In other words, return to the well of a relationship with him. Listen, if your mornings and days are marked by spiritual apathy, that, that's a check engine light saying you need to make time with God. You need to create space in your mind to block out things and commune with him and ponder deeply those refreshing doctrines of his unconditional and eternal love for you. When apathetic, return to the well of his love. Daniel and I didn't plan this, but marinate on these lyrics. You're going to sing them in a second, but just marinate on these lyrics for a second. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life and I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Friends, all of us have weak, fallen flesh that we still struggle against. We naturally slip into spiritual apathy. We embrace orthodoxy, but from cold hearts. In the face of that kind of spiritual apathy, God makes a case for his love for his people. In other words, when you don't care, he still cares, amen? Return to the well of his love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. It's just this reminder that you not only have loved us in the past, but you promise to love us in the future. You promise to be with us and for us, delighting in our good, working for our good, no matter what our circumstances are. Father God, may we believe that. Spirit, come, draw us back to that truth. Stir our hearts again to the gospel. May the gospel not be stale doctrine, but, but it, may it be just the, the joy of our lives. Lord, for those of us who are, who are apathetic today, draw us back to the well of your love. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.